Well, I believe that I have something this morning that's going to help someone in this room. And um, uh, because I'm talking, I'm going to do a couple of sermons on reconstructing faith. And uh, we've, got, we've got an exciting month coming up. Uh, the uh, young adult group, I believe, in three Sundays, the young adults are going to have the service. And I'll probably be giving a brief message that Sunday. And you don't think brief message and Pastor Phil can go together. But uh, I'm going to prove you wrong. Um, and then uh, Dan Burrell is in, the, in, in town. And he's up in Toronto, actually, today. He's speaking at the American Scientific Affiliation. But he's going to speak here. Uh, on the, I believe it's the 20th, and then Joe McCutcheon, my brother's coming up the last Sunday in August. So uh, we got to, yeah. I'll tell Joe that five people clap <laughs> when I told them you were coming. You'll try again. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, good. Now I can tell him they all clapped. Let's read, and we're going to go to Psalm chapter 73, verse 1. This is going to be our jumping off point today. Truly God is good to Israel. This is a psalm of Asaph, and I'll tell you a little bit about him in a moment. Truly God is good to Israel, to those whose hearts are pure. But as for me, I almost lost my footing. My feet were slipping, and I was almost gone, for I envied the proud when I saw them prosper despite their wickedness. They seem to live such painless lives, their bodies so healthy and strong. They don't have troubles like other people. They're not plagued with problems like everyone else. They wear pride like a jewel necklace and clothe themselves with cruelty. You know, as Asaph, the creator of the Psalms, clearly points out, sometimes experience doesn't seem to validate what we've previously seen as truth or what we've previously believed. Uh, sometimes it seems that this God who rewards faith is not alive anymore. That benevolent, all-powerful God is not working. In fact, the opposite seems to be happening in our lives. Does anyone relate to that? When experience and belief aren't, don't, do, no longer seem compatible in your life. Um, a new phrase has come into public use, and that phrase is the deconstruction of faith. You may have seen it, uh, a lot of people talking about it in social media, Twitter especially, I see it. The word deconstruction has its roots in something called post-structuralism. And um, in, in essence, post-structuralism challenges the idea, this comes out of the academy and universities and philosophers, it challenges the idea that there are clear and fixed truths in the world. And the idea is, is now everywhere present, and it's in the water we drink, the air we breathe, that there are no fixed truths. And uh, uh, so it's not, it shouldn't be surprising that the church and Christianity has not been spared. <laughs> but don't think it's anything new. It's very, very old. In fact, we see it, we see it um, uh, all the way back in Genesis. In the book of Genesis, say, the serpent comes to Eve and says, Did God say? 
And then he challenges what God said. And, and then we see in the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 11.3, he says, But I fear that somehow your pure and undivided devotion to Christ will be corrupted, just as Eve was deceived by the cunning ways of the serpent. Eve deconstructed her faith in an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving God. And then we see it in the words of Paul in 2 Timothy 4.10. He said, Demas, because he loved the world and has deserted, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica, Crescens to Galatia, and Titus to Dalmatia. The demon, Demas has forsaken me. Demas has deconstructed his faith. And then we read Paul saying in 1 Timothy 4.1, as he he warns us that this, this will continue and the implication is it will, might even increase. When he says the Spirit makes it clear that as time goes on, if you're reading King James, it says in the last days, as time goes on, some are going to give up on the faith and chase after demonic illusions put forth by professional liars. Now, what our text in Psalm 73 reveals is that there are life experiences that tempt us to deconstruct our faith. But I want to argue today that these times are actually God's strategies to reconstruct our faith. I want to make the case today that these times of temptation to reconstruction are normal and they're even healthy. And if you learn to interpret them properly, you will actually become stronger, you'll become better, you'll, you will have more joy, more peace, more of the Spirit of God if you learn to properly interpret those passages in your life when you are tempted to deconstruct your faith. God's strategies to reconstruct our faith is what I want to talk about today. If you will learn to identify that these opportunities go deeper, or they're to make you go deeper and stronger, it's similar to strength training. If you see someone who's really buffed, like myself, you know, if you see that, I can, you know, do you know the process for, for, for becoming muscular? It's to go into the gym or if you're home or wherever you have, have weights uh, or some way to exert pressure and you, tear, you actually tear your muscles down. The way you build your muscles is you tear them down. And then God has built it into your biology. God has built it into nature that, that by stressing your muscles and destroying them down, they build themselves up back up. But here's the deal. They don't just build themselves up. They build themselves up bigger and stronger than they were before. Now that process that God put in nature, but the reason Jesus taught, used nature to teach all the time is because nature actually mimics the spirit world. Nature gets its pattern from the, from the way God works in our hearts and the way God works in our spirits. So I want to encourage you today, if you're going through a period of questioning and, 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 a, and, a, and some form of deconstruction, it's okay. It's, it's okay. It's good. Phyllis Tickle uh, was a, 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 someone who was heavily involved in publishing for many years and and, and she wrote a book, which I don't agree with all of her conclusions, but she wrote a book called The Emergent Church. And she said, 
And she makes an incredible case for it that every 500 years, the church has to have a rummage sale. <laughs> and she talks about the, uh, it, she takes it through history, and it's quite amazing that every 500 years, there's this big shift. And so, like, if you go back to like 2007, 2008, that's about 500 years from the Reformation. It was Martin Luther. Well, we won't get into all the weeds with history and stuff. But, um, but, but sometimes I know in my life I have to have a rummage sale every few years. Every few years I have to have a rummage sale. I have to re-examine everything I've thought and everything I've believed. Now I want to finish this last Sunday and talk about some of the pitfalls of that. But I want to stay, try to stay away from that today. Because I want to get into today what are those, passage, what are those passages where you start to construct uh, you know, we used to sing a song, God Knows the Way Through the Wilderness, and all you have to do is follow. So these times of weariness, questioning everything, discouragement with faith, perhaps even attraction to some new shiny object of religious ideas, are really God's purifying process. You see, the Word actually makes it clear that we start out with a corrupted faith. We are like potters on the wheel. We have to be broken and remade in order to arrive at the place of spiritual maturity. Jeremiah said, uh, uh, then the word of the Lord. This is not in your, in your notes, but it's in mine. Jeremiah said, the word of the Lord came to me. He said, can I not do with Israel as the potter does, declares the Lord. Like clay in the hand of the potter, so you're my hands. If you go read that text, he describes going down to the potter's house and the potter takes the pot that he's made and he crushes it and he breaks it and he remakes it. And when he remakes it, it doesn't have any blemishes in it. When he remakes it, it's more beautiful and the, the scripture says this in 1 Peter 1, 6, So truly be glad. There is a wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a while. These trials will show you that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire, is test and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. In fact, Psalm 73 was written after the Babylonian exile. Isn't that interesting? Jeremiah has this idea of crushing the pot, clay and the potter, and God said, this is what Israel is like. And then Israel goes into 70 years of Babylonian captivity, and for many it was even longer, but 70 years. And this psalm that I just read to you was written post-exile. It was written right after the exile, and it was written by a guy named Asaph, who was, who was an, a, a singer and a worship leader in, in the, on the worship team down at the temple. So, so no pressure, worship team folks, that you're expected to have prophetic words from God. But you are, right? Asaph admits his own temptation to deconstruct his faith because he observes that the wicked appear to be more comfortable and live more trouble-free lives than they have. They have their private jets and their villas and a home on Martha's Vineyard and a townhouse in Boston and a townhouse in New York City and a townhouse in Paris. And they're totally, totally uh, hate God, you know. And you go, wait a minute, what's going on? I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I give my money to church. I serve at the church. I love God, and I'm driving a Kia, you know. So, let's get into this. We all have to cross to this intersection. I call it of experience and belief, where something about our faith in God and His Word no longer makes sense. And we experience this intersection of belief and experience, and they stand in stark contrast to what we have known and believe in the past. 
So let's go, the first intersection that you might come to on, the spiritual, on your spiritual drive through life is the intersection of truth and God's silence. When the heavens, as we used to say in the old days, we'd talk about the heavens are brass. You pray and nothing. God is silent. Most of us, most of us are drawn to Christ in a time when God is very noisy. We're drawn to faith when we're hearing from God everywhere. We turn on the radio and hear from God. We turn on the TV and we hear God, somebody saying something from God. And somebody gives us a book. That book is exactly what we needed. Or somebody has us watch a, a video. And that video, my goodness. We go to church and the pastor preaches. We were talking in the car on the way to church. And the pastor preaches on what we were talking about. God is just everywhere and he's speaking in our lives. That's the way many of us come to faith. We wouldn't have come to faith. We come to faith because we were just hearing from God everywhere we turned. And you have that emotional experiences that it can only be explained by the fact that you're seeking God. You come to church and the worship team starts singing and you just start crying. You just start crying because you just feel the presence of God and God is so real to you. When you read the Bible, you open your Bible, and every time you open it, that's exactly what you needed to hear, right? Then the heavens go quiet. God disappears. The honeymoon's over. You know, you, you, psychologists talk about, and they've actually done brain mapping to show this, that there's a state, and they've given it a name called limerence, when you first fall in love with someone. They, they, they have what they call the halo effect. You look at the person, that person is on the other side of the car, and they have a halo over them. They're, they're perfect. They have no faults. Then one day, you look over them at the bed next to you, and you go, man, what? Was, was I on drugs? Well, Christianity has a limerence phase too. When, you, when you're just in love with Jesus, man. <laughs> one form of God's silence, let me give you a few forms of God's silence. One form is an absence of spiritual manifestations. You're not, you're not hearing the words from God. You're not hearing the words of prophecy. You're not... You're not feeling chills when the pastor gives a point, makes a point in his sermon. You're, that's one form. Another form of God's silence is mysteries and unanswered questions. So all of a sudden, things, wait a minute. Uh, you, you, the, you went to a, you know, while well, I was raised going to Sunday school, we were told the earth was created in six literal days. And now you read some Christian who's also a scientist who says that's impossible. Couldn't have been created. And you go, wait a minute. My, teach, my Sunday school teacher lied to me. She told me the world was created in six literal days. And they're telling me it could have been 6,000 years or 6 million years. I'm going to give you a little, I'm going to tell you something about that. It doesn't matter if it was created in six days or 6 million. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The Bible has, there's plenty of metaphorical statements in the Bible. I mean, the Bible talks about gathering under the shadow of God's wings. Do you think God is a bird? 
The Bible says a day with the Lord is a thousand years, a thousand years a day. Do you think that verse is exactly saying that? No, the verse is saying that you can't really measure God in terms of time the way we think of time. But it can really throw you off when you first hear. I understand that some, some, some are having problems because biologic remains were found in UFOs. I don't know, that doesn't bother me, but it, I, it's causing, I don't know, I, I'm not figured out why that's causing some to question their faith, but, I, but I'm willing to work with you and try to, try to, <laughs> try to help you with that. Um, another form of God's silence is an absence of God's presence. Just, you just don't feel the presence of God. All of God's greats testify to this experience of what we call the dark night of the soul. Listen what what the psalmist David said in Psalms 22 when he's running for his life. He's been anointed to be king of Israel. He's killed a lion and a bear under the anointing of the Holy Spirit. He's killed Goliath under the anointing of God. And he he has seen his music. He is is a musician. And he's seen his music cause, cause demons to shut up and go quiet when he would play his music. He's experienced God at a very high level. And listen to what he said. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? I know you attribute that to a prophetic word about Christ. But David didn't, didn't say, I'm going to say this thing and some preacher's going to say 3,000 years from now, he's going to say, he's going to realize I was talking about Jesus. No. When he wrote it, he, he wrote it in a song. He was singing it about himself. And yes, it is a prophetic of Christ. But he said, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far when I groan for help? Every day I call to you, my God, but you do not answer. Every night I lift my voice, but I find no relief. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. David didn't deconstruct his faith. He reconstructed in the moment of God's silence. Another intersection is the, the intersection of faith and spiritual guidance. A lot, a lot of people get, get off on this one. I mean, I mean the, a lot of people get uh, tripped up by this one. It's when you're absolutely sure that God has revealed something to you and it turns out you were wrong. You're absolutely sure that God told me. It's a wonderful thing, you know, and, and, and it's something we all have experienced if we've walked with God. We've experienced the promptings of the Holy Spirit, the whisper of God, as some people call it. And almost everyone is, I believe people, some people aren't even Christians experience this. Or aren't even, you know, we all experience that thing when we have a revelation in our hearts and you feel a prompting, you feel a prompting to take a different route when you're driving, only to discover that the bridge was out and the road you were going to take and you weren't going to be on time if you'd taken or, or because of winter weather, it felt wise not to try to go to your church 25 minutes away. So you came to Bethany Community Church because it's down the street and you always drove by it. And that day you went and that day you looked across the room and you met the love of your life and you fell in love and got married. And four kids later, you, you just are, are so happy that you... That, that God told you not to go to your church 25 minutes away. You know, that kind of stuff. But perhaps God told you to hire someone that seemed unqualified. Or they were so qualified, you never thought that you would win the battle to hire them, and you hired them, and it worked out great. 
But then there are those times when you really thought you heard from God. You've even argued with others that God told me to take a certain path. God told me to make a particular decision. It can cause you to make one of two conclusions. I can no longer trust myself. When it doesn't work out, I mean to say. I can no longer trust myself to hear from God. Or is there even a God at all? Was that just, was that just psychological uh, 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 happenings in my brain when I thought I was hearing from God. You might even feel like Jeremiah in Jeremiah 27. You deceived me, Lord. I was deceived. You overpowered me and prevailed. I am ridiculed all day long. Everyone mocks me. Maybe you even feel that way. Never mind that you actually ignored biblical explained reality in 1 Corinthians 13, 12 that says, now we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror. The Bible never said, never taught you, that you were going to be able to live your life and all your decisions through personal revelation from the Holy Spirit. It never told you that. In fact, it told you you would not. It said you would see, King James, you would see through a glass darkly. You would see puzzling reflections, and sometimes you would get it right, and sometimes you'd get it wrong. You also ignored 1 Corinthians 14, 29, that says, when you prophesy, let two or three people, let two or three people evaluate what is said. That you were never intended to be a spiritual island unto yourself that could hear from God without subjecting your supposed revelations to the community of faith. What kind of arrogant person would we have on our hands if you were the person who never had to ask for advice and that only God could give you advice? What kind of, what kind of messed up person would you become if, if, if you only listened to God? Your, quiet, your silence is scaring me. <laughs> Revelation is to be scrutinized by the community of faith. Great harm has been done by people who can never be wrong. You heard about the, the, the guy who, who claimed he was a duck, he was a hunter, and he claimed he never missed. He never missed. And one day... He goes out with people and he's going to demonstrate that he never misses. They, they scare out a flock of ducks. The ducks take off and he fires. No ducks fall into the water. And he said, guys, you're witnessing a miracle. There flies a dead duck. Some people are like that. God told me, Pastor Phil. Well, okay, let's see how it works out. Be humble. Okay, number three, the intersection of truth and badly behaving Christians. <laughs> Don't relax. I'm not going to tell stories. When Christians hurt us, and let us down. Boy, that's a big one. I've talked to a lot of people who don't go back to church anymore. Said, if that's an example of Jesus, I don't want Jesus. If that's an example of God. A leading claim among faith deconstructionists on social media is hypocrisy, sexual abuse, and authoritarianism by the church, by church leaders especially. 
Newsflash, it's not all fake news. It happens. And it, doesn't, it didn't just start happening when Netflix started making documentaries about the church, about Hillsong and other groups that you've seen. Um, I grew up in church, Pentecostal churches I talk about a lot. And uh, we always noticed that the guy, we, we would have a person what we call a Sunday school superintendent. And he would, he would run the education uh, arm of the church you know, usually a volunteer, and it was a volunteer in this case with this man. And we did not think anything about it that young boys were always going out to his farm. I mean, that was, that was 60 years ago, 55 years ago or so. That was over 50 years, well, you know, well over 50 years ago. We didn't think anything about it, that young boys would always, he'd always take young boys out to his farm. Now, these days, you'd, you'd question it. But those days, you, you, didn't, you didn't question it. And it wasn't it was like uh, many years later that my brother came forward and said, I went out there and he, he, he tried to molest me. And this is a leader who's getting up. I can, just, I can picture him and his wife playing the piano and he was singing and he doing, being all spiritual. Yeah, the stories are true. Within the Christian community, there are uh, another thing you're going to see is within the Christian community, there are passionate disagreements and divisions about doctrine and interpretation of Scripture. There, there's also deeply loving... There's the fact, I meant to say, there's the fact that deeply loving and caring for one's church naturally leads to intense conflict. If you deeply care about something, you will tend to fight about it. You know, my wife and I will sometimes fight because I don't clean as well as she would like. Now why is that? Because she deeply cares about her home. She deeply cares about her house. We would never fight if she didn't care. So I think that's the problem, that she cares too much. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm the problem. I'm the problem. I'm the problem. I'm completely. That's on tape. I'm the problem. See, when you, you say, well, why do churches have, why do we have church fights? Because people really care about their church. That's why we have church fights. Finally, the Christian community is a family, and a family members offend and hurt each other. How, how many of you agree with me that family members hurt and offend each other? That's why sometimes the church needs to be an army instead of a family. <laughs> sometimes we just need to march <laughs> you know let's go fight the battle forget about that you don't like him he's going to save your life if he fights you fight alongside him let's take a look at an edited version of a passage of scripture using the message bible and I want you to keep in mind that He's talking about a local church community, not rival gangs. <laughs> this is from the Message Bible, because I just thought he worded it so clearly. Where do you think all these appalling wars and quarrels come from? Do you think they just happen? Think again. They come about because you want your own way and fight for it deep inside yourselves. 
You wouldn't think of just asking God for it, would you? And why not? Because you know you'd be asking for what you have no right to, you spoiled children, each one in your own way. He's talking to a local church. I know you think he's talking to Congress. <laughs> but he's talking to the local church. Well, high expectation is the grounding for heart-wrenching disappointment. I said high expectations. Uh, I don't know, Steve Gonzalez here, I, Steve, are you here? Steve and I, a long time ago, I remember we went to play golf, and we, both, we were just, I still play badly, he, he's really improved, but we were both playing badly, and we decided the key to happiness in golf was to lower your expectations. <laughs> we decided the whole problem was that number that you have on your scorecard that says far, par four. Well, if that number said eight, <laughs> you would be a lot happier, wouldn't you, Craig? You'd go, man, I, I got there in seven. <laughs> but that stinking card and that little sign on the tee box has this number. Because they, they're saying, we expect, if you, if you belong here, we expect you to get it to the end of the hole in three or four or five, depending on what the par is. I say we get rid of pars, Craig. We get rid of that. And we would all be happier golfers. Craig's really good, so he, he, he doesn't need that. In fact, it, he needs it because it makes him feel superior. <laughs> Listen to this. Unrelenting disappointment leaves you heartsick. The, the, uh, one, one version of that says raised expectations makes the heart sick. Uh, we're all familiar with uh, ambiguous images. You heard that phrase, maybe or optical illusions is an easier way to say it. There are those pictures that can be perceived in multiple ways. And, and I want to show, uh, we're going to look at one in a moment. And I, and I want to ask you, and I want to say, some of you need to step back and look at the Christian life again. Because the image you're seeing is discouraging you. But there's another image that God wants you to see. You know? And, you know, you can go, uh, you know, you can go, we're living in the last days. That's scary. Or you can go, thank God, we're living in the last days. Jesus is about to come back. <laughs> Just depends how you look at it. It's all perspective, right? And so uh, I, we're just going to, I want to, I want you, we're going to put this picture up there of, uh, of some of you are going to see, you, how many of you see a, va a vase or a vase? How many of you see a vase? How many of you see two faces? How many of you, how many of you can only see one? How many of you can see both images? Hey, you're, that, this is an intelligence test, so you did well. <laughs> What's the point? You, 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 you have, uh, all of us who've raised children, moms do this way better than dads, but dads, we tend, we tend to say, suck it up, buttercup. You know? But, uh, but moms are really good at this. And I love this image. I've seen it. I've seen it with my wife. I've seen it with others. 
because the child's upset and they're looking down and they're crying. And mom goes over and just gently puts her head, her hand under the child's chin and lifts it up. Hey, we're going out for ice cream later. Hey, do you know this? It's called distraction. Or look out the window. There's a dinosaur out there. And a lot of times it works. And you know what the Bible says? God is my glory and the lifter of my head. God is my glory and the lifter of my head. God wants to raise your, your, your view so you see what you've not been able to see. The psalmist Asaph was struggling with a perspective issue. The, the famous Old Testament worship leader had gotten stuck in seeing life from a single perspective. In Psalm 73, he candidly shared his struggle, his doubts, when he observed the prosperity of the wicked while facing his own trials. He experienced the intersection of truth and envy where the world seemed unfair and God's goodness was questioned. He said in Psalm 73, do, 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 Did I keep my heart pure for nothing? Did I keep myself innocent for no reason? I got nothing but trouble all day long. Every morning brings me pain. Then he went to God and he got God's point of view. If you go down to verse 17, Then I went into your sanctuary, O God. And I finally understood the destiny of the wicked. Truly, you put them on a slippery path and send them sliding over the cliff to destruction. Then he said in verse 21, Then I realized my heart was bitter. I was all torn up inside. I was so foolish and ignorant. I must have seemed like a senseless animal to you, yet I still belong to you. You hold, me right, you hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, leading me to a glorious destiny. Whom have I in heaven but you? I desire you more than anything on earth. My health may fail and my spirit may grow weary, weak, but God remains the strength of my heart. He is mine forever. Those who desert him will perish, for you destroy those who abandon you. But as for me, how good it is to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my shelter, and I will tell everyone about the wonderful things you do. I was talking to my grandson a couple of years ago, and I asked his permission. I asked his permission to share this, because I, I want my family to know that I will not constantly use them for sermon illustrations without their permission. So I asked him if I could share this. And it was two, maybe three years ago. And I got to talking to him about his faith. And he admitted to me, well, I have a head faith. I believe it in my head. But I'm not experiencing it in my heart. And I began to pray for Braden after that, that God would give him a heart experience. Because you can't know God just with your head. You've got to know him with your heart. And uh, last year, he went to youth camp and got into one of those Pentecostal prayer meetings where people are crying and praying and some of them, I think, were even speaking in other tongues. hope that doesn't scare you away. And he came back to me and said, Pop, why can't that happen at our church? <laughs> and he had a hard experience with God. And he went back this year and the same thing. You know, 
Remember a few minutes ago I read to you that verse that says unrelenting disappointment makes your heart sick? You know how you go to the doctor and they order a test? And if it hasn't happened to you, if you live long enough, it will. You will go to the doctor and they will order a test. Maybe they do a a biopsy, blood test, x-rays. Then you go back for a follow-up visit. And you go in that little room and the nurse takes your vitals. and You know, blood pressure, all that stuff. And uh, then the doctor comes in. He's maybe, maybe he has the x-rays. Or maybe he turns <coughs> boots up his computer and he reads to you the results of your test. And you get your diagnosis. Well, some of you this morning, you're in God's waiting room. And I believe the whole Dr. Holy Spirit has just come into the room. I want the prayer partners to come and get in place. Because I believe the Dr. Dr. Holy Spirit has just come in the room. And Dr. Holy Spirit says to you, your results are in. The results are in. You are heart sick. You have a broken heart. You may even have a bitter heart. But here's the good news. I know a specialist. I know a specialist that I'm going to send you to. And he is the healer. He is the healer of broken hearts. He's the encourager of sad hearts. He's the transformer of disappointed hearts. And some of you need to respond to that right now. And you need to admit that life has worn your heart down and distracted you from God. And you've, you, some of you have even gone over the other side and you've checked out. Like a, I'm going to probably tell the story next week and I'll give you a little bit next week of a guy who went down the path of atheism and humanism and his hero became Richard Dawkins. Some of you know who Richard Dawkins is, many of you don't, but he's, he's a very, very famous atheist and written, written books about it and stuff like that. So he bought Dawkins' book and he was so excited to meet Richard Dawkins. He went to a book signing and he walks up to the table and he says to Richard Dawkins, hey, I used to be a Christian, but now I'm not. He said, Richard Dawkins just looked at me. He said it was the most awkward moment. There was no love. And it was, he realized, I walked away from a good church where people loved each other and they cared about each other. And here's this guy who's writing all these books who's not even interested in me. And some of you, you've gone to the other side and you've checked out the other gods and you know how fake they are. And you know that Christianity has its problems, but doesn't compare with the problems of the other religions, with the false religions. And this morning, God brought you to this house to heal your heart. Your problem is not intellectual. Your problem is spiritual. And God is turning your heart back to Him. These prayer partners are standing here wanting to pray with you. Now, I want every person in this room who says, Pastor, I need my heart healed. 
I need my heart restored. I realize this is a broad spectrum of people, that person who's just gone to total atheism and the person who's just struggling with discouragement. But I want you to come up here and be prayed for. I want to see a move of the Holy Spirit that will happen at a heart level. I'm going to pray, and when I'm done praying, would you come? Father, I pray for your people that you will heal our hearts, heal our wounded hearts, and set us free in the name of Jesus. I want everybody to stand, and if you answer, need to answer that altar call, come down here and be prayed for right now. Come on quickly. Come on, let God heal your heart this morning. Some of you in the, in the conversation with God, in the conversation with us. Let God heal your heart. Just step forward and be prayed for, sir. Somebody, somebody died, you prayed they would be healed, and they weren't. You, God has life for you. God has life for you. Father, in Jesus' name, pray with me, congregation. Pray for these people. God, in the name of Jesus, we pray for our friends today who've been courageous enough and honest enough to say, I'm having, a, I've got a tired heart. I, I've, got a, I've got a weary heart. I've got a discouraged heart. I, I've, got a, I've got a broken heart. Maybe I even have a bitter heart. God, maybe someone is re even has resentment toward you. I have had that before, God. When I had resentment toward you, I resented what you had allowed to happen in my life. But God, I pray in the name of Jesus, the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, heal our broken hearts. Lift up our discouraged hearts. God, we know you will prove yourself. But right now, we just need a touch from the Master. Right now, we just need a touch from the Master. Right now, we just need a touch from the Master. How many of you out there would say, you know, I don't think that I'm in enough crisis that I need to go down and be prayed for. But I will admit to you, my heart is weary. Come raise your hand. Raise your hand. Raise it high. I'll admit to you, Pastor, my heart is weary. Now let's pray for all the weary hearts in the room. God, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would strengthen the weary hearts in the room. The people whose hearts are weary, the people who are tired. You're tired of, 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 of a culture that seemingly has turned its turn, has become aggressive toward those of us who believe in you. And you're, are you weary of your own life experience? God, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, we ask you to fill us with new joy. In Jesus' name.